Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. This is our science shorts series, which at the moment we release once a month. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and it is the 30th of July, 2020. These shows dig into the science behind conservation, with deep dive discussions on very specific topics, like how mercury gets into our oceans and the knock-on effects to humans and wildlife. Or as in today's show, how do we protect the great apes from succumbing to the current SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, and what that means for how we support the local and, and often very poor communities in and around these populations of primates? To help me understand this, I spoke to Dr. Fabian Leendertz, head of the Leendertz Lab. His team specializes in researching sources and reservoirs of microorganisms with zoonotic potential, particularly in Central Africa. This makes him the perfect person to shed light on the situation. I actually recorded this uh, interview a few weeks back, but as I release this today, there is news that some reserves are planning on reopening, allowing tourism around great apes to start again. We'll hear in this show what risk is associated with that. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation as much as I did. If you want to help support these, head over to patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers. Fabian, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I imagine, given the nature of the work that you do on a daily basis, that the last couple of months have been pretty busy for you. What's what's that been like? Yes, we have been very busy. Um, since we're working with um, African partners since since many years in, in different directions. Uh, so one direction is to support our partners in public health in, in the African uh, countries in setting up diagnostics, setting up now like zero surveys and things like that. But then the other branch of my research is very focused on the wildlife zoonosis and especially the great apes. And so here we were working with the field sites, also consulting on how to try to prevent spread of corona to, to the wild great apes and other wildlife. A lot of people will have heard zoonosis and vectors and zoonotic potential, these will all be phrases that they've heard for the first time in the last couple of months. Can you expand on those a little bit and just help people understand exactly what that means and how, we're, how we've ended up with uh, a, a virus that started in wildlife transferring through to humans? Yes, yeah, so zoonotic disease are basically those which switch the hosts, right? So it's a um, a pathogen which was transferred from one species to another. And uh, that can be various species, you know, no matter what. It could be a primate or a bat or a rodent. There are many examples out there giving their pathogen to humans. But actually, zoonoses are also defined now the other way around, that it can also be a human disease which is transferred to wildlife. So it's about an uh, interspecies jump, right? I mean, zoonotic disease have a, have a very, very long history. Actually, most of the, the, the pathogens we carry originally uh, come from wildlife or other animals. And uh, so there are some prominent examples, uh, such as HIV, 
uh, in humans, uh, the main type comes from chimpanzees, was transferred uh, through hunting, butchering of chimpanzees. Um, other examples are the famous Ebola viruses or the Lassa viruses. But even things we carry around since many years already, like measles virus, have the origin in, in, in animals. So, so this kind of goes to probably the, the, the core of what I wanted to speak to you about today was, I know at the, at the very start of the pandemic, uh, you released, um, I think it was an article on your website, but also uh, there was a letter that you were part of in Nature raising the alarm for the potential effects of um, COVID-19 in primates. So this is the, the transfer from humans to the great apes in particular that you were um, you were referring to, what has uh, what mitigation measures have been put in place to ensure that that doesn't happen? And and is it a very real risk? Like, do we have examples in the past where we've transferred viruses to some of the great apes and it's it's killed them? Since we have unfortunately many examples of especially respiratory disease causing viruses which have been transmitted from humans to wild but human-habituated great apes. Uh, we are uh, very alerted. Um, the, the thing is, um, these outbreaks we observed before due to human respiratory virus transmission have sometimes been quite lethal, lethal. So we lost up to a quarter of a community, for example, of wild chimpanzees in, in Ivory Coast in Thai National Park. And we have gathered concrete data on, on these transmission events. I think our first big publication about that was in 2008 already. And since that publication, also the primatology and especially the great ape community is discussing these issues and have put in place at, at really most field sites, no matter if it's tourism, ecotourism, or research, uh, hygiene measures to try to reduce that risk. And uh, some of that is also very nicely summarized in the IUCN guidelines, which I wrote with a few other colleagues, where we try to really make broadly available what is the problem and what countermeasures can be taken. So when the new coronavirus uh, uh, popped up in, in, in humans, a zoonotic disease, again, coming from wildlife, uh, we, we were really alerted, thinking that 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 is a real threat to the wild great apes because, especially because the virus often causes mild symptoms in humans. And this is when you still go to work, you will still go even in the jungle and follow the great apes. And then you create the risk of transmission. And this is also what we found for other viruses in the years before. It's not the virus like influenza, which makes you severely sick. Then you stay at home and are not going into the jungle. But when you have those rather mild symptoms, you still feel fit enough to go into the jungle, and uh, then you create the risk of disease transmission. So this is exactly the scenario we have at the moment. What actually happened, because my understanding was that most of these parks, they pretty much shut down for all tourists because they weren't willing to take the risk. So the, the only people working in these different conservation initiatives around great apes right now are uh, those rangers who would be working with them anyway. There's no, there's no tourists going in there at all. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, so after, I mean, we and, and, and others uh, raised awareness about that risk, um, very quickly the authorities in, in all, all great ape range countries reacted really well 
and closed down the tourism, which was not a major step to do anyways, because the tourists are not allowed to travel anymore worldwide. Yeah, true. Very true. Yeah. Uh, but, but still, it's an important signal to say that they don't allow it, right? It's, it's not only passive, it's active. And, um, and then reduce the work with the great apes to the minimum needed, which is not only local staff, that can also be international researchers or scientists working there. Because we cannot simply leave the animals alone. There is a higher risk and even higher risk now of poaching. Um, so we need to stay with them to see how they're doing and to protect them as well and show the communities around that these projects will continue and they're not stopped now. So that's, that's a very important thing to do. Do you think that going forward, as we come out the other side of uh, this pandemic, that things will change when it comes to tourism around great apes in particular? I mean, if we don't, I mean, until we can be 100% sure that the people who are going there are not carrying it, will there actually be any uh, possibility of, of tourists going? And I'm not just asking that question because people it's something that people like to do, but I'm very aware that the dollars that people bring is what is funding a lot of this conservation. Exactly. The dollars are very important to convince the communities around those protected areas to, you know, to protect the animals and not to kill them and sell the meat or live animals. So it's a very important thing. And this is why that gap is dangerous. You know, and this is why the projects have to continue. And I think each of the projects is very active in trying to find uh, new resources for, for, for filling that gap, not only to pay staff, but also to continue working with the communities. Like we have a little initiative where we are asking the local tailors to make masks for the communities and things like that. So that's important. Um, and then as every, as every like, pizza restaurant, um, we have to think about how to restart in a responsible way um, also the tourism activities, which are the main ones creating income, but also research. And um, here, I think it's, it's it's important to note that we are learning more and more about this, this virus, right? And the more we know about it, the better we can design countermeasures to prevent uh, transmission. And um, also in the countries itself, the people become more uh, um, active in, 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 and capable of testing as well people. So we need to know where is the virus and perhaps even have a routine monitoring of people going to the great apes for, for the virus. Um, so that's one approach. And the other one is ultimately to, to hope, as everybody in the world at the moment, I guess, to hope for a vaccine and then make sure that those People living around great ape habitat, which are very often neglected by the local public health systems, are not the last to get the vaccine, but rather one of the first to get the vaccine, because it's important for the people, but also it reduces the risk to the great apes, right? So that would be a very big step. So yes, uh, and there's a whole community of great ape specialists uh, who, who are in very good contact and, and trying to work on exactly under which scenarios and with which conditions can we slowly restart such activities? As someone who studies this uh, transference, of, transference of, of viruses from humans to uh, from wildlife to humans or humans uh, back to wildlife, 
Do you foresee a future where this happens more with more prevalence because we are ever encroaching in nature? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. I, it, it's very hard to say it is really increasing um, because also in the past people have been in contact with wildlife and there was even more still wildlife there, right? So the thing which for sure have, has changed and where there is obviously good data is the human population has grown dramatically in, in especially those parts of the world. And the connectivity has increased also dramatically. There is a high mobility now. So if a virus makes a jump from the animal into the human population, in old times it would it may cause may have caused a small outbreak, kill people in a village, which is always bad. But the chance that it um, spreads further was really low. So it was quite relatively easy to just isolate those areas and try to save as many people as possible, but then uh, the fire would just get extinct by itself. This has changed, and this is why we see more and more these large outbreaks, like we saw Ebola in West Africa, now the big one in eastern DRC. A new one just started in DRC Yeah, again. I saw that. Um, so it seems like the frequency is increasing because we know about more of them and because they spread better, right? So, so I think it's not so important if it's more frequent, the initial transmission, the question is what are the consequences of the initial transmission? However, what has changed as well is hunting behavior by many people then because uh, much of the large wildlife, unfortunately, has gone extinct because of this hunting pressure. And people also start hunting other species which have not been so much on the agenda, like smaller mammals, uh, rodents, bats, and things like that species which may harbor a different range of potential zoonotic pathogens. So there are many factors in here which influence that increased uh, disease emergence, and I'm sure we will see more of that. Um, but I also hope and see that we will be better prepared, even better prepared next time, not only here in Europe or somewhere in developed countries, but also putting more efforts in trying to build up more robust public health infrastructures in the neglected countries. Um, because they are the ones who are most likely to experience the new outbreaks. And then it would be nice if they have the capacity to already fight that problem before it becomes a pandemic. Right? So do you see one of the potential solutions to reducing the possibility of this happening again, investment in in rural poor communities, which, as you said, either sometimes legally, but more often than not illegally, are, are, are taking wild meat from, from the bush or, you know, whatever the environment is around them. You, you're a lot of your, your um, focus is in Central Africa, so it, it really is, you know, sort of very dense and, and largely uninhabited by human bush where, where humans are going in and extracting wildlife. And as you said, the wildlife declines there have been marked over the years um, as human populations continue to encroach and look for food. Do you see one of the solutions as um, providing investment in these areas so that the need to go and extract wild resources isn't quite there so much, or it could be done in a more regulated way? Yes, I think that this is a very one of the main points you're saying. I think um, so. There, there are different things here. Run 
is to invest in a better public health infrastructure. If you see those small hospitals, if you see one at all, because in many places there are none, right? Yeah, I have seen. They have one doctor and a nurse or midwife. The midwife are normally the the best best, uh, trained ones. Um, And that's it. And they, they don't have very big range of possibilities to also even identify uh, novel things or uh, unusual things. So there is a lot of training need and capacity enforcement need there. So the public health infrastructure must be strengthened in those areas. And then the second thing is, uh, like on the on the human side, uh, um, to tr- think about alternative sources of protein for people. But it's not that easy because there's a long tradition of hunting things, you know, and eating wildlife and and fish and so on. So um, this is something which you cannot do in a top-down approach. You have to work with the communities and see where they see possibilities. However, then we also have linked to that the, the, the regional markets for wildlife, which are tremendous, and the demand for bushmeat in the big African cities, that's what I know best about it, but it's the same in other parts of the world, I guess, is um, is large because people still want to follow their tradition and eating uh, bush meat, and they pay a lot for that. So this demand is also something to try to stop because those people don't need the piece of monkey meat; they just want it because it reminds them of their. It's a tradition; it gives them special strength. Sometimes there's even something mystic to that, right? So this is another important component, um, and then. So that's sort of the the practical things. But also we are still lacking a lot of real good evidence on how things happen and what are the risk points, not only geographically, but also in terms of human behavior, right? So I think also we need more and systematic research in this area to, to, to know where exactly lie the problems so we can tackle them better and raise better awareness. So it's a very complex issue. <laughs> I was I was speaking to uh, an economist at the Property and Environment Research Centre in Bozeman uh, just a couple of days ago on the podcast, and along with some other scientists, they had reached out to the WHO uh, on this this notion of potentially looking at, at banning the the trade in in wildlife as, as a way to, to mitigate the potential risk for another pandemic. But Catherine was pointing out that by doing that, you're actually probably going to affect some of the, the poorest and most rural regions the most because they currently rely on it. And you could, in fact, exacerbate the problem as it becomes uh, completely a, a black market um, sort of underground operation, and there hasn't. She she was saying, but I, I'm happy to be to corrected or for you to inform more on this. That when it comes to the legal trade of wildlife products, and that could be anything from the trade of venison in South Africa to through different antelope or venison here in Scotland where I live. I mean, that is a wildlife product. When it comes to the legal regulated trade, there hasn't been any. Uh, evidence to suggest that that has been the uh, the the source of any major outbreaks in the past. I think it really depends on which area of the world you're talking about. You know, I mean, like South Africa, for example, Namibia, they are very good in managing their wildlife populations. They have 
wildlife farmed for the sake of being hunted and being eaten. Um, I don't see any major issue there um, under the conditions that they, they respect, you know, the, the welfare of, of those animals. And they, uh, But um, the thing is that uh, in Central West Africa, law enforcement is very still very weak when it comes to anything related to wildlife, you know. So um, the regulation is basically not there. And then there are different opinions on that. And I agree that it will not be possible to totally stop it and it could have effects on some local populations. However, there, there are also many people making a lot of money with that large-scale wildlife trade, right? More than the one hunter in the village going into the forest extracting. And actually, my, my, my feeling is that many of those really professional hunters are a different category than the family father going hunting to feed his family. So I think um, I would like to see more details also on, on the economies of this wildlife hunting and trade. And um, I think it's not as simple as that. So I think there are different categories to look at. Mm -hmm. so, so, so what you're referring to are those sort of more organized, I mean, this is, this is largely speaking illegal trade is what you're referring to, um, more organized, probably involved in um, sort of criminal networks of some sort where they're exporting large amounts of um, sourced wild game and wild meat and byproducts of wildlife normally being shipped out the country to to Asia and other parts of the world. Yeah, that's well that's one part, right? But then also the the in-country trade is enormous and I don't have the number in my in my mind now, but it's it's also multi-million billion dollar uh, uh, markets in Kinshasa, Abidjan and these cities, right? So um that I think that's still the main the main driver there at the moment. So um it is complex. I think so. If we we start, or if we look at the legal, because some species are legally hunted in some areas, and if that is controlled in the right way and controllable, then this is a good thing. If if the wildlife population is really then still stable, yeah, under these conditions, and I think there are good projects, for example, by WWF in in Zanga Zanga where they have this national park, they're working closely with the communities, and then they have a hunting zone where the communities are allowed to go hunting uh, using their traditional hunting techniques. So nothing where you kill 20 elephants at once. Um, but uh, they have these traditional hunting techniques which are allowed to use for certain species like dikers. They're not allowed to hunt uh, primates or elephants or things like that. And that seems to be working out quite well. So more of these, very, you know, of these initiatives where you work closely with communities and respect the local market and the local need for that. But this is not feeding people in 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 Bangi or something like that. This is really for the local communities. And I think that's something which makes sense also in the in the terms of conservation. But then this is a, one of the rare examples where you know conservation people work very closely and well with the local communities. In other parts and in the majority of the parts uh, of Central and West Africa, that 
that's not existing and that's not possible. And we see that the national parks where I'm working in since 20 years, like Thai National Park, are basically hunted out except for the research area where we and others are working. This is where you still find good wildlife densities, but the rest of the park is empty, basically. So it's even the national parks are not working out, right? So this is why it's very hard to convince people to say, hey, let's have this legal hunting and then uh, have protected areas or species which cannot be hunted because um, that's not respected by the local community because perhaps they don't even know about these roles and there is no law enforcement because the, also the judges are eating wildlife all the time, you know? So it's it's very, very difficult to, to get to get the system in there. It, it occurs to me, as, and maybe this is just a, a way of closing up the conversation, that the potential global impact of this increased interaction through illegal activities of hunting, for whatever that might be, through for traditional and cultural purposes, which is a much more difficult thing to to, to change and shift and, and and sort of re re educate. I don't even know if that's quite the right right term. And then there's the other element, which is just people who are hungry and in poverty and need food, and that's a very very basic need. I think everybody can absolutely understand that. But if it's going to have global consequences, like the potential for a future pandemic, uh, like we're seeing now, and I think it's very much in every, the forefront of everybody's mind just how much this has impacted everybody's life on the planet, then it would seem sensible to me to suggest that there should be global investment in these areas, maybe more so than there has been um, to date, in order to alleviate some of the the issues and need around uh, the legal where it does exist, or the illegal activity of um, extracting you know wild resources of game um, from these lands, and increasing and while they're doing that, increasing the risk of, of transmission of zoonotic I, I, I totally agree that um, this this is one of the key issues and. Uh, People always say, oh, that's too expensive. But now if we look at how many billion euro <laughs> Germany yep. alone has to invest in trying to rescue our economy here, <laughs> you know, that's really a, a game changer, right? Now that the number suddenly looks small, what we would need to to, to build up capacities and to, to, to create different livelihoods in, in those areas. Um, not in a top-down approach, as I said already, but in, together with the community. Um, so that is very important. And I just want to, because we haven't touched on that point as well, is that the population grows not only in the big cities, but also in, in all other areas. And so a forest which was able to feed one or two villages around may not be able to do so anymore because... Um, the villages have grown enormously. And I'm working in some areas like in Cote d'Ivoire near Thai National Park, where, you know, you, when you drove to the park, you would see a village every half an hour, 20 minutes. Uh, and now it's became one large village, the whole thing around the park, right? So these are local changes which are very dramatic and have to be addressed as well. And I, that, that'll only come through education and on-the-ground discussion with local communities. Yeah, it's you know it's 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 also touching on you know the whole question about 
family planning and so on. You know, it's, it's very it's very tricky because there are lots of traditions in there. Um, the old belief: the more children you have, the richer you are, and the more people can look at after you when you're old. All these things, um, you know, may have to have to be be addressed and perhaps changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of that stemmed from the fact that quite simply people didn't live very long and uh, there was a high mortality rate or high infant mortality rate. And so people had a lot more kids to ensure that you would have a small number of children when you're later in life and, and old to still look after you because the mortality rate was simply so high. And, and that is changing over time as we're able to get medicines to more rural and poor communities. Yeah, so, you know, on, on the one hand, I said we need better health infrastructure in those areas, but then, you know, it could also lead to an explosion of the population. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have better health infrastructure. I'm just saying that it has to go hand in hand with uh, with other factors like family planning, um, creating alternative sources of income and so on. Right? It's very complex, <laughs> unfortunately. Fabian, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you've been very busy. Uh, I think there's a lot of thing, a, a lot of food for thought in this discussion today, and I will direct people towards your your website if they if they want to read some of the topics in more detail. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thanks for your interest. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week when we take another walk into the wilderness. Okay.